Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing Show. This week we are exploring inflation. Sadly, something more and more people are having to come to terms with as we see the cost of living continue to move higher. But what's its real cause, how it's measured, and more importantly, what can you do to keep yourself moving ahead financially in these more challenging times? Plenty of things to take out of this. As always, take plenty of notes, but most importantly, please do make sure you take plenty of action. Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing Show with me, your host, Andrew Baxter, and as always, my offsider and co-host, Mitchell Lorenzo. We're in for a good one today, Mr. B. Thanks for having me. We're talking about... Got the memo for the shit this morning. Yeah, that's right. Not bad. Very well Great one. Things alike. Nice one. We're talking about inflation today. This Mm. has dominated headlines for years now, since Mm. COVID, really, with the whole notion of quantitative easing, plenty of spending. We'll go down that rabbit hole in a moment's time, although we're going to get the full rundown on what inflation actually is, and that might surprise a lot of people. Indeed, it's it's something I've been putting a bit of time into of late. As you say, it's very much front and center on the radar. Yeah, we're in a cost of living crisis for a lot of families uh, and people that are out there. And um, I'm also in the midst. I'm I'm, I'm doing a, a talk at Bond Uni uh, in a little while's time. So I'm sort of starting to do my prep uh, for this, which is always That's fun. That's early for you. Usually the night before. Yeah, there's before. a lot of pressure on this one. It's a, it's a, it's a very very interesting talk I've been invited to do, and and so I've been diving a bit deeper on some of, and challenging some of my own beliefs because I think particularly given the forum of, of, of that presentation I'm doing um, you've got to challenge your own beliefs as well to better provide a, a really well-rounded um, conversation I suppose and, and some thought-provoking content for the attendees and as you know I'm an economist by by qualification uh, and, and we've talked about inflation in, in its various forms in the past and I guess you know putting it very simply for most people their understanding of inflation would be well, it's it's an increase in the cost of living or its price is moving higher. So if I used to buy a coffee for five bucks and now it's six, that dollar increase that I've got is due to inflation. Very simple way of looking at it and to an extent is semi-accurate, but really is it? And that's the rabbit hole I've been going down uh, with some of the research uh, that I've been doing. So you know, if you break inflation down into the two traditional families, as I was taught at university, and uh, and probably anyone else that's uh, that that's spent their time doing an economics degree, um, there are two major types of inflation. There's there's cost push and, and demand pull. Demand pull is when there's a substantial increase in the demand for something. So if we take lithium as an example, given the fact that we're seeing mandated government policies for electronic vehicles, demand for lithium has been you know, very, very strong and very high, which has resulted in not just lithium, but a number of precious rare earth pipe materials seeing an increase in their price, simply by virtue of the demand the insatiable demand for those commodities going up. So demand's higher, that allows producers to charge more for their price, yeah, right? Yeah, because people are going to compete for that resource. So gotcha. you know, you, you're fighting with other people for it. It's a free market, so it becomes an option system and you're going to pay more for it. The other um, side of the equation is cost push. So the easiest way to think about that is if the cost of something has gone up, it's then pushed onto you as the consumer, meaning that the price of that service has gone up. A really good example of that would be if you were looking at um, fuel prices prices increasing and you were looking at the cost of freight because it costs more to drive the truck from A to B or to fly it from uh, one side of the world to the other, you're going to pay more by virtue of the freight costs of shipping that around. So that's an example of cost push where the cost of higher energy to propel the vehicle has increased and you, the end consumer, then get to pay that uh, and that's cost push, in, cost push inflation for you. So let me ask you something then, AB. Why is everything more expensive? Because I can safely assume that 
there hasn't been such a huge increase in demand in every single good of every single sector. Yeah. And there hasn't necessarily been an additional cost passed on to the consumer in every single sector with every single good, right? Well, that's right. It, it seems that it is across the board and it may not be. There are going to be aberrations in there. Someone say, oh no, su such and such is cheaper. If you want to buy glass or something, it's cheaper. But by and large, <laughs> you know, most things across the board have significantly gone up. And, and sometimes you can attribute that to one underarch or one overarching factor like oil prices and that pushes through on a lot of different things, including the cost of your groceries. And you think, well, hang on a minute, how does a higher oil price impact on higher groceries? Well, they've got to be transported around, they've got to be kept refrigerated, um, you know, they've got to be kept in a warehouse gassing off for a period of time, they've got to be put on the shelf uh, in an air-conditioned shop or in a chiller. So all of those things go to contribute towards costs. So oil is an example of something that sort of has quite far far-reaching consequences, but you look at private health cover, uh, look at building materials, um, you look at you know the underlying costs of food, across the board it's up. So you're right, how can everything be higher? Now, what do we measure inflation with? And, and, and I guess the, the, the fundamental measure for it is something that's called CPI, which is Consumer Price Index. We use other measures as well. Um, you know, the one in the US, which PCE, PCE which is you know, personal, consumption, uh, personal consumption expenditure, which is a very good measure. PPI, there's Producer Price Index, Manufacturing Index, all these different things, but CPI, uh, uh, is the inflation figure uh, the that dog. most things are based on. If, you, if you've got a commercial rental agreement, for example, your rent will be increased by CPI plus a percentage. So it's a, a very well-known thing. But how accurate is CPI? And in the past, if you go back to, to, to look at what, what inflation was measured on, it was a standardised basket of goods and services, and you'd measure how much more expensive that basket of goods and services became over a period of time. But the content of that basket changes quite regularly for one. So then you're not comparing literally apples with apples. You might be comparing bananas and apples, which are very different and different supply chain and everything else that goes alongside it. But also as I've been digging into this, and I haven't seen this since 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 my since my time at university, which is which was you know quite some time ago now. Um, and that's hedonic adjustments to Inflation. You say hedonic, hedonic adjustments. So hedonic. I know you're planning on heading over to the Greek islands for your for your birthday, uh, for your birthday next year. So hedonism will be very very high on your list of uh, top of priority. Top I would priority, say. I would say. Yep. So hedonic um, adjustments are where, let's say, yeah, and anyone listening to this can attest to this. If you think in general. If you looked at airfares, probably not at the moment, given some of the, the, the political stuff that's going on in the market, but probably up to the period prior to the pandemic, generally speaking, airfares have come down in price. So if you think about, you know, when I first moved to Australia, we had Ansett and you had Qantas, and you know, if you wanted to fly to Sydney from Brisbane, it was probably seven or eight hundred dollars, and now you could probably do it for 80, 90 bucks. Um, Maybe not anymore. Um, you used to be able to. You used to be able to. And, and so you'd go, well, no question about it, airfares have, have gotten cheaper. Now, what the hedonic adjustment is, and this is particularly the case for US CPI, is you'll look at a product and go, has this product changed? So if you're talking about margarine or, or, or spreadable butter to put on your toast, and you go, okay, that's one of the basket of goods that we've got here. And then you look at it and go, yeah, but this has changed. It's had a revision to the way it works. It's new and improved, and therefore it derives a better utility for the consumer. Um, therefore, we're not comparing apples with apples. So even though it's got more expensive, it's a better product, so it hasn't gone up in value. 
like comparing an iPhone 10 years ago to the iPhone now, right? right. Completely different in totally functionality. Different. Exactly right. Well, if we go back to airfares, you might think, well, airfares have, have gotten cheaper, but in, res- in some respects they haven't because what you might now have is an airfare, but you've got to pay for your bags, you've got to pay for your food, uh, depending on where you want to sit on the plane. And I'm talking about a different class, but if you want to sit you know, on an aisle seat or in an emergency six row or someone that's got more leg room or someone that's quicker to get off the plane, you then have to pay a premium for that. So when you actually look at it, on the surface, airfares might look cheaper, but it is a revised good that doesn't have as much utility or benefit in it. So in effect, it may look like it's cheaper and having less of an impact on CPI, but in actual fact, it, it, it's not the same product. It's got all this stuff missing. You've got to pay more for that. So in fact, it may have gone the other way. Magazine's another good example of that where look at these visual statistics. Uh, magazines were down, uh, or sorry, increased in value or cost by about 30% over 10 years. It's actually 130%, really easy to do. You can just bring up the front cover of a magazine from 10 years ago and then look and see what you pay for it today. And you can see where the price move actually is. So CPI as a measure is is, is quite quite vulnerable, I think, to misinterpretation and, and statistical adjustment. Which is crazy because that's where the whole central bank decision-making criteria comes from is the CPI figure, right? For the most part. Um, for the most part, absolutely. It's one of the major inputs into the mix of what are we, what are we going to do with interest rates today? And I think it, for a lot of Aussies listening to this, we've seen interest rates go up a lot over the last 12 months based on CPI going higher, which if you're not comparing apples with apples in CPI, it's a really hard pill to swallow. So I guess the next question then is if we're sort of questioning why has everything gone up in price? It's not cost push, it's not demand pull, and is CPI even accurate? You know, we talk about, you know, if CPI is running at six, the reality is inflation is probably closer to 10. So what, what's the cause for inflation? And this prompts a little bit more of a philosophical conversation, I think. And as I say, I'm preparing this for, you know, for, 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 for quite a high profile talk. And when you look at the private sector, first of all, and, and there's an important distinction between the private and the public sector. The private sector is all about creating enterprise value to fix a problem, to provide a better quality solution, and to do so on a scalable way, which over time becomes a cheaper fix for the customer. Because if you come up with a fix for someone's problem, and you start to gain market share by virtue of the private sector being the way it is, somebody else is going to come into that space to then become your competitor, to take some market share from you, and then you have to start competing on price, which effectively then brings price down. So as a consumer, you think about a TV, for example. You know, 15 years ago, if you wanted to buy a flat panel TV, it would probably cost you 10 or 12 grand. Now you get one for under a thousand bucks. So that's an example of where the private sector has has fixed a problem. Maybe not the best example, but it's one most people can relate to. Phones would be another example of that, where more and more features and benefits are provided for the customer, improving their experience at an increasingly lower price point. So the private sector is all about reducing price and providing efficiency and service. On the flip side, and this is where I guess this starts to get a little bit controversial, the public sector is very different because number one, the public sector isn't necessarily incentivized to improve efficiency because it doesn't have to survive as a commercial entity. It relies on tax from the government to fund it. Now, tax is not the government's money, it's yours that you pay to the government to provide certain services. It's guaranteed income for the it's guaranteed government. Guaranteed income, whether you do a good or a bad job. And 
I guess without being too cynical, if you take a look at you know, the performance of most local councils when it comes to footpath repair or roads maintenance and all that, they do a pretty bad job. You know, you drive past the build site and there's you know, 20 people and eight of them are stood having a cup of tea and a couple are doing some work. And that can be, I know that's a very jaded way of looking at it, but that's certainly an observation I think that a lot of people would, would probably concur with. And, and if you look at, say, what the government's role has been in terms of causing the inflation problem, if the private sector is all about reducing costs ultimately to make a profit, make no mistake about it, it is for profit to benefit the stakeholders, but the profit's generated by providing a value-added service that helps people and they're prepared to pay for. If you look at the situation on the other side of the coin, inflation, you could argue, is practically or almost exclusively created by governments. Because a different way of looking at inflation, instead of it being prices rising, and really, prices rising is actually a side effect of inflation. It's not inflation itself. Inflation is actually an increase in the money supply. More money in circulation being printed means there's more money chasing after a finite amount of goods and services. And if you've got more money chasing a finite amount of goods and services, prices move higher across the board, which is the situation that we now have. And there's only one group that can increase money supply, and that's government and central bank combined. That's effectively it. And so if you look at economic policy over the last period of time, and we can talk about the pandemic, we can talk about before that, you know, the policy of, of quantitative easing, well, quantitative easing, that sounds like, yeah, quantitative easing, stimulate the economy, sounds pretty good, I'm signing up for that. Really, all quantitative easing is, is we've got this new policy, it's called inflation. Yeah. <laughs> so we're Average gonna call- policy. Yeah, if you ask it's, me. it's brilliant. So we just rename it. So we're going to call it quantitative easing. It's actually called inflation, but we'll call it quantitative easing. Yeah, print so, money. Yeah, print money. Put and more money in circulation. And by virtue of having more money chasing after finite resources, it's going to stimulate economic activity, which in turn pushes prices higher. Which So people spend more, producers can then charge more for it, right? Well, there's more competition for the, the, the finite resource, so the price go, go, goes up. So all of a sudden, you've taken your economy out of maybe the doldrums to burning pretty hot now. The challenge is that once you're a government and you've increased money supply, and a classic example of that are government subsidies, I guess, again, without being being too cynical, your primary purpose, I've got to be very careful how I say this as a politician, is to get re-elected. It's not necessarily about a long-term plan. It's about the next four years here in Australia, and in some instances in the US, it's a two-year cycle for Congress and Senate and so on, but in Australia, it's about four years typically, is to make sure you get re-elected. The best way you can guarantee to not get re-elected is to start taking things away from the people that are going to elect you. So once there's a subsidy in play or an allowance in play, it's almost impossible to take back without risking your political career. And if you're the group that are actually responsible for printing the money, well, it doesn't matter anyway, because it's not your money, we'll just create more money supply and then there's more money to pay for that bill. We don't have to take it away. They don't get cranky about it. That's okay, they'll vote for us again. And, and this problem becomes to be propagated. And we've seen that firsthand, obviously, through COVID, where you know governments have thrown huge, huge amounts of money to stimulate their economy, but there's no way of necessarily pulling that back. So you can either have inflation and your subsidy or not have inflation, but don't have a subsidy, mm. for example, which one's worse for the consumer? Well, you'd rather manage inflation than a recession if you're in office, because inflation is good. Everyone's got lots of money, they're happy spending it, and it doesn't matter whether they worked and earned that money or whether it's been given by virtue of 
economic assistance in some way, shape or form. You know, job keeper would be an example of that or job seeker may be an extended example of that. Um, and again, yeah, there's no intention to be political with this. It's the reality of the situation in many of the Western countries around the world where governments have racked up you know, enormous amounts of debt providing various subsidies and now they're having to combat the other side of the equation, which of course is inflation. Now, typically economic policy, as a, as a, a, in terms of monetary policy, there's two ways you can control um, the money supply in the economy. You can take it out by using fiscal policy, which is tax. Remember, tax isn't great for your longevity in politics. Look, yeah, we've got the economy going. Now we're going to tax you to death. Yeah, hope you enjoy definitely it. Definitely not. Don't worry about now. In the next election, be thinking about twenty years' time because you, your grandchildren are not going to have to pay for this debt we're racking up. You're going to pay for it now. <laughs> Yeah, that's a, a perfect message at the polling booth. And again, I appreciate this sounds a little cynical. On the other side of the coin, it's monetary policy, which is what we've seen most Western governments do, where you start to turn the dial up on interest rates, which in many instances uh, means higher mortgage payments and it takes the sting out of the economy. But as we've started to see, for example, here in Australia, whilst the RBA have, have increased interest rates to, to take money out, you've still got a government that's quite happy throwing more subsidy in. And as long as you keep throwing more money supply into the economy, you're going to have an inflationary problem. Correct me if I'm wrong, this really hurts the lower to middle income earners in Australia, right? Or any, any for anywhere in that matter. Inflation without subsidy definitely hits the financially poorest people, the working poor. I'm not talking about people that are on just on a benefit income, they're on a fixed income, they're going to get hit pretty hard anyway, um, because their income is fixed, as is that for someone that's a pensioner at the other end of the scale too. Um, but certainly the financially poor um, get hit the hardest, the working poor. But also, I think those people that are less financially sophisticated, which is, I guess, is the, the, the nuts and bolts of money and investing and, and what we do in terms of financial literacy, because during times of inflation, if you've got the right kind of investment strategy, you can do exceptionally well. Because you go, okay, there's increased money supply, there's inflation, so out comes the playbook. Which assets are likely to perform the best under these circumstances? And let's make sure that our asset mix is very heavily weighted toward those versus someone that's maybe a little bit less financially sophisticated okay, we've got inflation, interest rates are going up. Oh, good, that means I'm getting more interest on my money at the bank. In reality, as we've talked about, money at the bank is a guaranteed negative return. You know, if you're earning 5% on your money, but inflation is six, you're making minus one, you're going backwards. And the cost of living is still pushing further and further away from you, uh, leaving you in an even worse position over the, over the long term. So if you're someone that's on, say, fixed interest, so let's say you're, you're on an annuity income or you've got a bond portfolio, again, by, ver by virtue of the fact that it's fixed interest, you're, you're getting left further and further behind. Whereas on the other side of the coin, if you've got someone that's maybe f more financially educated and, and is in a portfolio that's skewed toward um, assets which are, perform well in inflation. So if you've got property, well, effectively it's index linked because if inflation goes up, your rent goes up, happy days. You charge more. Yep. Um, you can charge more for it. If you're in the stock market, um, you know, typically during times of inflation, you've got reasonable economic growth. So company profits typically are quite good and your share prices will do well. Look at the US right now uh, in terms of the way it's performed over the last 12 months versus where inflation has been. It's done very, very well for investors. Higher dividend yield at that too, of course. Uh, higher dividend yields because interest rates have, have gone up to combat that plus capital growth out of the stock because there's more money supply chasing after more goods, which means companies can make more profit. So there's, there's probably never been a more important time from an investor perspective or, or 
a listener perspective. So if you're listening to this and, and you're not really investing right now at the very start of the journey, this is why getting financially literate and being educated as to where to play the game uh, is extremely important. A lot of people are getting left behind. Now, of course, what does the government do in those circumstances? Knowing full well if you leave people behind, they're probably not going to vote for you. Let's give more subsidy out. Um, we've got the cost of living allowance uh, which is uh, currently afoot in our parliament to be distributed to lower income owners. And effectively, that causes a short-term relief of cost of living pain for those people, but longer term, it actually contributes to more inflation. So the problem becomes bigger and bigger. It's kind of like a snowball effect over time because that money is then spent causing more and more people chasing finite resources, pushing prices up for further and increasing the money supply that's out there. So the idea of giving a subsidy to try and fix a problem is actually the opposite of how you fix chalice, right? It's how you fix a re-election problem, but it's not necessarily how you fix an economic problem. And again, that might sound a, a little uh, lashed in politics. And this is the same in most of the Western economies, irrespective of whether you've a left-wing or a right-wing government in in in, in Parliament or in, in in office running the country. It's a it's a very very typical problem across the Western Hemisphere, and it's because we've chased this policy of quantitative easing, let's throw some money at the problem without reining it in, and you can't spend more than you earn for, for an, uh, 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 an indefinite period of time. The times you can do that, you can dip into your savings, but ultimately you've got to replenish them at some point. You've got to pay it back. And, and, and that, in a nutshell, is the nexus. It's a lot more discussion points. I can assure you it's significantly <laughs> more uh, colourful and a lot more examples in there because, well, what, what's the answer? How do you rein it in? And there are ways that you can do that to, um, to, to keep inflation under control, but it does require checks and balances rather than let's just some, throw some more money at the problem. And then raise money in the bond market to cover the debt that we've got, which again is like, if I gave you, if you wrote yourself a check for a thousand bucks and put it in your pocket and you'd written it to yourself, you're not a thousand dollars better off. You've got a debt which you can cover with that, but you're not better off. So this notion of selling uh, bonds, at some point you've got to pay them back. So it's not fixing a debt, it's just servicing a very short term thing. And that's that's a real, real challenge for governments right now. And until the actual real cause of inflation, which is money supply, which isn't just a question of adjusting mortgage rates, but needs to be on a more fundamental level from a government spending perspective. You need governments to spend, but it needs to be very selective on building something. Because you know, as a father with five children, at some point, my kids, I, I sincerely hope, have children of their own. Um, you know, it's going to be a fair old mob of them at Christmas, I'm sure. Family of 50, uh, yeah, where you're going. Who knows, it'd be quite the organizational chart. But the current sort of philosophy of, uh, it's okay, your grandchildren, will be paying for the money that's spent today. Again, is something as I'm preparing for this talk that hits me really hard because if you, if you were racking up debt and increasing money supply to build stuff, a road, bridges, a new city, um, infrastructure, schools, hospitals, uh, and uh, power and renewable power, if that's the play that you need to make, there's a legacy for where that money has gone. When that money isn't put into building stuff and is just pushed out there as subsidies in, in many instances, government assistance or, or just throw some money in the economy to stimulate it. Those grandchildren of mine, yours and everybody else's are paying for something that they're never going to see a benefit from because the money's already been spent. And I guess, you know, if I look back through my playbook, I mentioned, you know, when I studied, which was an awful long time ago right now, um, about, you know, cost push, push and demand pull inflation back in my uni days. If I think back to that era, uh, and particularly growing up um, in, in the 1980s in, in Britain, 
Britain made a choice and so did Norway. And both countries had significant, significant exposure to North Sea oil. It was between the two countries and to a large extent, it was a collaborative effort on it. And Britain through um, that time frame, had gone through a, a really difficult time under the Labour government up until 1979 when Margaret Thatcher uh, became Prime Minister. And unemployment in the UK reached 4 million. I remember, you know, there used to be news at 10 every Friday, you'd sit there and they'd have the jobless thing and it's really depressing watching and there's 3.5, it got up to 4 million people unemployed. And all of that revenue that the government garnered from the tax on North Sea oil in the case of the UK largely went into providing money supply and subsidy. Whereas on the other side of the, the North Sea in Norway, it went into investing in the Norwegian economy and resources. And now Norway's got one of the largest sovereign funds in the world. I think it owns, it's a crazy figure. It's in the order of about three and a half, four percent of global assets are held by Norway, which is a very small country. Well, okay. By virtue, somebody will pick up, maybe that number's not right, but, but it is an enormous number, number yeah. for the size of Norway. And that's an example where if your grandkids were paying something off, it wouldn't matter because what they're doing is paying something off that's an asset that's grown in value. But when you're paying off something that's not an asset, it's just like bad debt. If we go back to our good and bad debt presentation, that's heartbreaking. And I think more people need to understand that inflation is a cost of living rise. It is prices moving higher, but actual inflation is a diminishing of your purchasing power as a result of government spending and printing more money. So you might go, I've had a pay rise, I'm well earning 100 grand, I'm earning 110. But that 110 grand you've got now is only worth 90 grand in reality. So you've not moved ahead, you've been sold the dummy. You feel like you're better off, just like someone getting interest on their savings account right now feels better off because there's more coming in the door. But in reality, what you can do with that money is much less. And that's a very, very painful situation for people to be in. And the worst thing about it, Mitch, and that's why we're talking about it today, is you only find out about it too late. The reality is by upskilling and learning a little bit more about how financial markets and investments work, you can insulate yourself from that, you can prevent it, you can't change what the government's doing, but you can play to the game plan that they've laid out. Perfect. And that's really what sophisticated investors do. Awesome, and we can help with that. We know within our, within our team, financial planning and or our broking team 100%. too. 100%, and, and, and it's just about helping people understand that what was the died in the wall strategy, save your money for any day, put it in an offset account, pay your mortgage off. Those things aren't gonna work in the current environment. And by the time you work it out, you're gonna be so far behind as a consequence of this increased money supply because if it carries on the way it is, you know, you know, be like Germany, um, you know, in the 30s, you'll need a wheelbarrow full of money to go and buy a loaf of bread. I'm not saying that's going to happen. You might have a wheelbarrow of crypto doing the same thing, <laughs> who knows? But, you know, the reality is your purchasing power, you know, will be significantly decimated. And it doesn't have to be that way. If you take action today, not in six months' time, 12 months' time, two years' time, today, find out a bit more about how you can get things working for you. Perfect. Thank you, AB. My pleasure, Mitch. Anytime. There you have it, guys. Give us a review and a rating, and make sure you share this podcast with somebody that could benefit from the content. We we'll look forward to hosting you next week.